Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. All right, the Dallin Millard Mark Smith um, trial, murder trial, both of them being found guilty first degree murder in uh, in the death of Laura Babcock. And after listening to Alex Pearson when she was reporting to uh, our 900 CHML radio station in Hamilton during the uh, trial of um, of Smitch and Millard. Please excuse me. <laughs> the throat's a little raw. Um, I-, I wanted to talk to Alex about this particular case and this particular trial, which has just concluded in Toronto with guilty verdicts, as we said, for both Millard and Smitch. Alex, thank you very much for taking the time. No surprise, really. Millard and Smitch were found guilty of first-degree murder in the death of Laura Babcock, the same two who murdered Tim Bosma and Ancaster, you attended that trial from beginning to end and were able to watch both Millard and Smitch closely. What most stood out to you about these two heading into the trial that just ended today? Um, what stood out to me? Um, well, but, I mean, for, for Dallin Millard, certainly, he, he has always played the victim, and, and he played the victim right up until the end because, of course, he had tried to get the mistrial at the last minute while the jury was out doing deliberations because he felt that the closing arguments had been unfair and prejudicial to him. That was thrown out. Um, I can't tell you, Roy, how pleased I am that this jury came back. And I didn't doubt ever that they would come back with anything else but first-degree murder. But really, that is the only just um, verdict that could come in this particular uh, case. For the Babcock family, and I think it's important to remember, Laura Babcock was essentially the forgotten victim in this. And I think to to some extent, Wayne Millard also, the the father who... um, Dellen Millard will also face trial for in March. But Laura, Laura Babcock was really never mentioned, and that's because there were such sweeping publication bans on the first trial that we couldn't mention anything about it. And because she went missing and, um, you know, older people do go missing, the case itself didn't get a lot of attention in the beginning. That is until Tim Bosma uh, went missing and had ended up being murdered, that they reopened the investigations into Laura Babcock, and then she kind of came onto the radar. But she really, I don't think in her family, have not gotten the just attention that they are due. And I think that has been very difficult for her family, who have literally had to live in silence for all these years. Well, today, I think for them, they can start the healing process. And that's really what I think um, is the most important thing. Alex, here's just a few seconds of uh, Clayton Babcock after the verdict. You also know about the evil beings that took her life. And if society's lucky, we will not see them again on the streets. You know, yeah. they, they had they had no interest in the pain and the suffering they were causing people. These people were, nope. these two guys, were they were cruelly arrogant, arrogantly mm-hmm. cruel. Yep. Yep, no. Dallin Millard um, was handed everything in life. He came from an aviation dynasty, never lifted a finger, but his grandfather and his father, who made um, a, quite a fortune in this industry, essentially handed him everything. This was a kid who should have had 
a, a big, big life. And instead, he took that money and surrounded himself in losers, complete losers who are all too happy to do the drugs, party their life through. And I think it really enabled and fueled Dylan Millard because he essentially is a narcissist. He's a psychopath. And by surrounding himself with these losers, they were inevitably able to uh, start a life of crime. And it started small, as we saw throughout the Bosma trial, of petty theft, which grew into bigger thefts. And then, you know, I guess they decided that they wanted to graduate to murder. And Laura Babcock was the first to go. She was a nuisance in Dylan Millard's life. Um, his girlfriend, Christina Nugja, was jealous. And so he said, I'll get rid of her. And so he did get rid of her. And uh, the sinister mind of Dylan Millard and, and his, uh, his loser friend, Mark Smith, they buy this animal incinerator. And I guess they concocted a plan that this is what they were going to do with their lives steal stuff, party, and kill people, because this is what we are looking at with these cases, are thrill kills. Laura Babcock went first, um, and then Wayne Millard was shot, um, and he is accused of shooting him, but it was initially ruled a suicide by the police. And then Tim Bosma was abducted and then killed. And so these guys, I don't think, if they never got caught, they would have continued going on and on and on. Yeah. And thank God they are where they belong and they seem so, whether you're talking about these two or you're talking about uh, Bernardo, yeah. they, they, they feel so confident that yeah. they're going to get away with everything they do. This is this, this sad and sick and psychopathic confidence that they take into their crime sprees. Yeah. Look, they've never, neither, Smith has never spoken a word other than when he testified at Tim Bosma, but he never mentioned Tim Bosma's name. And neither did Dylan Millard nor Christina Nugd or any of the idiots on the stand. It was all about them. And that really rang um, close to home for me because as I listened to these cases and trials and witnesses, not once did I ever see a sign of empathy uh, for those who are left to pick up the pieces. Now, of course, lawyers will say, well, they're not going to do an admission of guilt. But even... Even when Dylan Millard sat down to do a jailhouse interview a couple of weeks back, it never was, well, I'm sorry for what the families went through, but I'm innocent. It was, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. It's all about me. So they don't care. There's no one that they have left in their wake um, who has ever been given one sense of, you know, remorse or regret. Um, the, the only thing they feel badly about, Roy, is getting caught. Mm -hmm. Well, well done to the jury. Yeah, and, well uh, and now we wait for the sentencing. We'll wait for the sentencing. The jury made recommendations on what they would like to see. The judge will inevitably make uh, the final decision. And then we will probably see some procedural things happen, like dangerous um, dangerous offender status. Those applications will go in so that if, God forbid, they ever get out, which they will not, uh, they will wear that for the rest of their life. But don't forget, Della Millard still has another trial in March, and that is for the uh, murder, the first-degree murder, which he is charged with in his father's death. Don't forget. His father, uh, he, he had the estate of his father, and therefore he had all the money in the world to do all these things, including paying his legal bills, which he didn't have in this particular trial. So the, the right thing happened today, and they're exactly where they should be. Thank you, Alex. Much appreciated. Feel better. Manuka honey, my friend. Yeah, well, that's right. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks. Manuka honey. I've got some of that. It's expensive. I think it's about 28 bucks, if I recall correctly, for just a couple of ounces, but it's, it's terrific stuff. Alex Pearson, the host of On Point. Uh, with Alex Pearson on uh, Global News Radio. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. You also know about the evil beings that took her life, and if society's lucky, we will not see them again on the streets. There's uh, Clayton Babcock, the father of Laura Babcock.
This morning in the courtroom in Toronto, after the guilty verdict was brought down, or verdicts were brought down against Dylan Millard and Mark Smitch in the death of the murder of uh, Laura Babcock, we first became familiar with the names of Millard and Smitch after the murder of Tim Bosma in Ancaster, Ontario. And uh, now they've been through their second trial, and Millard has another trial coming up. Sean O'Shea joins me on the, the Roy Green Show on uh, Global News Radio. And Sean was uh, was in the courtroom uh, this morning or today when the verdicts were brought down. Sean, thank you very much for the time. There must have been a tremendous amount of tension in that courtroom. There was, Roy. Thanks for having me on. I did not cover the trial, but I did cover the verdict today, and Global News had extensively covered the trial. It was a packed courtroom, as you might imagine, and the jury had been deliberating for several days, and often in cases that makes people wonder about whether the verdict will come back as a not guilty, and that's certainly not what happened today. Both men were found guilty of first-degree murder. And when the judge asked the individual jurors to confirm their guilty verdict one by one in a roll call, as is usually the case, three of the jurors broke down and burst into tears. It was extremely tense, and you could you could see and hear the emotion and see it on their faces. This was a tough decision. This was a tough case. Um, what was the response and the reaction by Millard and Smith to the uh, to the verdict? Millard, who was defending himself, turned around and gave a long death stare to the Babcock family. Just stared them down and then turned around. Smitch was facing forward. And the family was there for the entire trial, and they were in the, the first row behind behind the uh, area where the judges judge and the lawyers sit. So they were there, and they looked back. But when the judge, you know, when the jury read the verdict, um, there was a lot of gasping on the part of the the family as well. I mean, this is the verdict that they had hoped for, but in the press conference just afterward, um, Clayton Babcock said, uh, you know, this wasn't, this still was not a great day for them. It doesn't bring any joy, he said, to them. He said the loss of Laura today is no less painful than it was five years ago, and like any parody said, who loses a child, they can only move forward with thoughts of what might have been. So the verdict they wanted, but not a great day. Good people facing abhorrent evil. It's uh, it's it's always so incredibly difficult, and you can't help asking yourself, how can anybody do this? But it happens again and again, and so we have the responsibility of having a justice system that holds them accountable. You had an opportunity to speak to the to the Crown. What, what did they, what was the Crown's position? The, the Crown's position essentially was that uh, that they were they were happy. They said justice was served today. They were very thankful to the members of the jury. You know, long trial, seven weeks or so, uh, long deliberation, right before Christmas. It's an emotional time. Um, it's it's a murder case. Uh, they thanked the Babcock family, and then I I, I spotted the Crown prosecutor uh, inside the courtroom after things had been wrapping up, and and she was crying. She'd hugged the family members, and then when she came outside to talk to reporters, I asked her about what kind of an effect it had on the legal team, the Crown. And she said, you know, this took a toll on all of us, our family. She said, you don't look at it till it's over, and they'll look back on it with emotion. So this kind of a case um, 
when you're dealing with good people and people that are really involved in trying to do the right thing and trying to do their jobs professionally, it does take a toll. You could see it on the jurors, you could see it on the lawyers, and um, justice is, is done, but as I said, it's, it's still not a great day for people because there's no bringing Laura Babcock back. No, and nobody ever expects to be face-to-face with this kind of evil and this kind of self-indulgent evil. Uh, what did the uh, police and the det- you spoke to a detective, did you, Sean? Yeah, the, the lead detective there, I asked him the question about, you know, why uh, he thought uh, it took the jury so long. And uh, he, he opined that uh, he thought it, it took them so long because they really wanted to take it seriously, do the right thing, and approach it so professionally. And on that point, uh, w- one other interesting aspect of this, of this day in court was that after the judge dismissed the jury, usually that's it. But then after the jury was dismissed, um, the judge um, mused about the possibility of, of the length of time uh, before parole eligibility. Normally on a, on a first-degree murder case, there's no parole for 25 years. But as you pointed out, uh, both of these men were previously convicted of first-degree murder. Of course, the jury didn't know that, couldn't know that, weren't told that, because they didn't want to have that get into their way of their deliberations. But, but after the, the verdict was read and the jury was dismissed, the judge called the jury back about 10 minutes later. He wanted their opinion about parole eligibility because they've now been convicted of two first-degree murder charges under some new legislation, federal legislation. Those sentences could be served consecutively rather than concurrently, so one after the other. And he wanted to ask the jurors what they thought would be fair when it came to these men and how long they should spend in jail. And both uh, the, unanimously, in the, in, in the case of Della Millard, the jury came back uh, and said, you know, th- they should be served consecutively. In other words, potentially no parole eligibility for 50 years as opposed to 25. Um, in the case of Smitch, five of the jury members uh, thought it should be longer and seven had no opinion. So this is a, a unique case as well, because this will, and the judge admitted he, he's not dealt with anything like this because the law is fairly new. Right. Um, Sean, thank you so much for the time. Uh, tough day for everyone. Uh, for you in the courtroom, for those of us listening, for the family, obviously, and uh, much appreciate the time. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Roy. You have a good day. You too. Sean O'Shea from Global News on The Roy Green Show. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Um, I've talked to a a number of friends, male friends, over the last couple of weeks, and particularly the last days, uh, about the issue of sexual harassment. These guys talk to each other about, hey, you know, these, frankly, pigs that we've been hearing about, people you become reacquainted with because there's the public persona that they have as you get to see them on uh, television, listen to them on the radio, and uh, read stories about them, and you have an uh, inflated view of who they are, and then you find out what they really are. So some friends of mine and I, as other men have done, will say, well, what exactly? Now, we understand that these guys are pigs and what they've done. It's, it's clearly defined as sexual harassment, sexual assault. But what exactly is sexual harassment um, as far as just a day-to-day relationship with a woman in the workplace uh, as far as that is concerned, or just generally a relationship with women in everyday life. Where is the line? What constitutes sexual harassment by men toward women? Um, 
And if you're from a generation which was instructed to treat a woman like a lady, is that today perhaps already leading toward the slippery slope of gender harassment? Does even a rumor of sexual harassment become a career destroyer? Lior Samfiro joins me, employment law specialist at Samfiro Tamarkin LLP in Toronto. Lior, thank you so much for the time. Uh, have you seen an increase in sexual harassment issue contact from potential clients in the last month or so? I absolutely have, Roy, and thank you for having me on. It's really been a topic that comes up now in my practice daily, and I mean this literally. It's been certainly a topic, even in the last few years, I have seen more of an increase just based on the fact that people become more aware of their rights, and you know, you read more stories, you hear more uh, more things in the news about it. But over the past month or two with the uh, uh, with the current climate out there and then based on the revelations made against certain celebrities, I've had other people contact me that they're saying essentially, you know, me too. I've been in this situation as well. Or on the other side, employers contacting me and saying, how do I protect uh, against these situations? How do I uh, extricate those that are causing problems from the workplace? So these are issues that are serious issues. And, and you know, as you alluded to, it, sometimes it's not easy to draw the line. We know what sexual harassment is in certain situations. When, when someone uh, exposes themselves or propositions another person, yes, we understand that. But there are types of conduct that may also constitute sexual harassment. And for some people, especially uh, you know, those people have, that have been doing certain things in a certain way for many years, uh, sometimes it's difficult for them to understand where the line should be drawn and that's where people tend to get into trouble. And people may say, well, I'm only complimenting uh, this person, this woman I work with. I didn't know I was doing anything wrong. Um, and then you wonder if a phrase, a joke, touching a woman on the arm, standing close to a woman while talking to her could be problematic. My thinking is that if you think it may be a problem, it is a problem. The, the test that the law looks at is what would a reasonable person think? So if we were to take a scenario and put in front of uh, a reasonably educated, reasonable person out there and ask him or her to decide, should this conduct be considered sexual harassment? Should this conduct be considered unwelcome? Would, what would that person say? And if the answer is yes, clearly that person would say that the answer would be unwelcome, that the conduct is unwelcome, then we would consider that to be harassment. And, and Keep in mind that perspectives change. What was perhaps acceptable 30, 40, 50 years ago right. is not going to be acceptable today. We have to look at it uh, you know, in, in the context of what's happening out there today. But absolutely, this is a very broad definition, what's sexual harassment. It could be anything from uh, you know, leering, you know, looking at someone in, in a way that suggests some sexual intent, you know, asking uh, a colleague out on a date repeatedly, not taking no for an answer. Uh, certain what otherwise may look like innocent touching could absolutely constitute sexual harassment. And, and I always say, especially to those that are in a position of authority, those who are in a position to, to influence others, you have to be safe better be safe than sorry. So if there's any doubt, if there's any question, err on the side of caution. And, you know, don't necessarily make a point to to be a friend with everyone. You don't have to be friends with all your colleagues, all the people that work with you. There's a distance that a manager, a supervisor, an executive has to maintain from those under them. Uh, and you really have to be careful because you may have innocent intentions, but they may not be perceived as such. And I do think that in the current climate, 
an employer who is who is looking at an employee that's being accused of sexual harassment is going to take action first and ask questions later. So what happens uh, to an employee if uh, another employee reports employee one and says, that person sexually harassed me and either says, here's what happened or doesn't go that far, just says, that person sexually harassed me. What's the responsibility of the employer and what could happen to the employee? So the employer's obligation immediately is to investigate. And it, they, they obviously are not supposed to say, well, if you say it happened, it must have happened. They have to take reasonable measures to investigate. That may mean uh, interviewing people, looking at whatever evidence there is. In some situations, especially more complex situation, it may involve bringing in an outsider to look at the, at the, at the evidence and to investigate. There's people that specialize in these things. One thing that the employer cannot do is ignore the situation and say, well, that's your problem. I've had employers say, well, you know, boys will be boys. That's unacceptable. So employer investigates, and if there's a determination made that that sexual harassment can be substantiated, the employer has to take action. That may mean removing the offender from the workplace by determination, uh, disciplining them potentially. Uh, If it's a more minor situation, perhaps providing what we call sensitivity training, when you explain and outline what's appropriate behavior in the workplace. But I do find that in the current climate, Roy, a lot of employers, before they even go through that process of investigating, they'll immediately let the person go because they don't want to be seen as being light or, or not being dealing with this situation seriously. And the, the, the notion is that if later on it turns out that the employee that we fired was not guilty, well, we can work that out with that person, and even if we have to pay them, and that's better than the alternative, that we're seen to be not dealing properly with sexual harassment. Yeah, that's but it, not right, I suggest, Roy. Yeah, isn't it true, though, that uh, just an accusation of being a sexual harasser could follow a man for life and and damage that person's employment prospects for life, whether they were guilty or particularly if they're not guilty, it's still that little cloud that trails them. So it's a very serious issue because it can damage some, someone's opportunities for the rest of their professional life. It's more than a little cloud. Absolutely, Roy. This is something that can haunt someone forever, uh, irrespective of what they actually did or did not do. And you know, most industries tend to be small industries where people know each other and people talk. And I'll give you one example. It's more of an extreme example. But I think we all remember Mr. John Gomeshi, a CBC broadcaster that right. was accused of, of some forms of sexual assault, actually. He was ultimately ex- exonerated. Uh, and obviously, we don't know what actually happened, but he was exonerated. He was not convicted of any crime, no, no real evidence to convict him. Yet, he's probably not going to work. He's been painted with that brush, rightly or wrongly. And, and that, while that is an extreme situation, there's other people, and I've spoken with and dealt with, will never be able to find a job in their profession because they've been painted with that brush despite them maintaining their innocence. So it is important for an employer to take these things seriously and to investigate and to understand that as much as we absolutely have to provide a remedy to those that are victims of harassment, we also have to be fair and provide a fair process to those that are being accused. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, Lee, or somebody suggested earlier today in a conversation I was having that maybe age also uh, is a factor, and not from the perspective of somebody uh, maybe you know from a, a boomer 
who grew up with a certain set of expectations and then someone who's a millennial with maybe a different set of expectations. But perhaps the interaction between the boomer and the millennial, maybe that comes into play as well, where the millennial might not feel uh, sexually harassed if a comment is made by someone of her or maybe even his own age, but doesn't feel quite that way when someone from another generation makes exactly the same comment. Uh, I, I know we're sort of throwing glass on the road here, but it is something to be considered, is it not? Well, absolutely, Roy. And, and a lot of uh, these incidents of sexual harassment uh, have to do with, with sometimes what what is innocent, but in the context of the relationship between the individuals may seem as inappropriate because there's a there's an age gap, because there's a, a gap in, in power, so to speak, within the workplace, if, if we're talking about workplace, uh, that someone has more authority. So I may speak in a certain way with my, my friend and colleague, and that's fine, but if I were to speak in the in 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 same way with someone that works for me, that reports to me, it may be considered inappropriate. So definitely age is a, a big gap here. And, and also age also factors into what I was alluding to before, which is the, the, the views of the person, someone that maybe is older and you know, has been doing certain things in a certain way, uh, even when these things were acceptable, may have a more difficult time adjusting to what we as a society consider now to be appropriate and inappropriate. Uh, you know, let's face it, views have changed, practices have changed, what's acceptable has changed uh, over the years. And I do find oftentimes, you know, I'm going to pick on, on older men, but I've seen that happen in many situations where older men may have good intentions, but they are used to a certain way of thinking and why they have a hard difficult time understanding that not, not everyone may be thinking that way. But again, that is no excuse. And what we're, we expect from employees and employers and, and individuals in the workplace is not outrageous. Uh, and it really is uh, about common sense, I think. So the final question for you is this. When is it the right time for someone to say, I was sexually harassed and I want some proper response to this. What parameters have to be met? Is it you just feel that way, that just the fact that you feel you were sexually harassed is enough that you require to go to the boss and say, go to the employer and say, hey, uh, this can't continue, or are there other factors that need to be met? Well, you, you gave an example before the break about the, the individual asking the, uh, the, the, the employee to help with their jacket and right. he says, no, what happens there? Well, our human rights laws have defined sexual harassment in most cases as being a course of conduct rather than an individual situation because every individual situation out of context and in isolation could be considered somehow ominous. So we really need to look at a course of conduct. So if this is something that happens every day, and every day this lady says no, and he says I insist, well, wait a second, now it seems starts to look at something else, rather this one time on a Friday afternoon this happened. Generally speaking, uh, when it comes to sexual harassment, if there's a more per uh, persistent and consistent conduct that makes someone uncomfortable, now is the time, of course, to speak with the employer and bring that to the employer's attention and give the employer the opportunity to fix that problem. Now, there are situations where one incident in itself could be sexual harassment, or, you know, obviously when it's more serious conduct and it's obvious on its face. But I do think that an employee should always give the employer the opportunity to fix the problem where possible, where it's not the employer itself that's the guilty party. We're looking at a course of conduct uh, and, and conduct that uh, would be considered, again, viewed reasonably by, by an outsider as being sexual harassment and being unwelcome. 
Lior, thank you so much for the time. Thank you, Roy, and I hope you feel better. Thank you. Lior Samfiru from uh, Samfiru to Markin LLP, Employment Law Specialist in Toronto. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. It's been quite a year, 2017. It has been quite a year with uh, just looking at global activities and global terrorist activities. You think about Manchester. You think about New York. You think about some of the incidents in uh, Egypt and Pakistan. It has been a rough year. So what are we looking for? What do we should we expect going forward in 2018? I'll tell you one thing that I'm really tired of. I'm tired of the politicians who step up after something that terrible has happened and they always mouth the same platitudes. We will not be defeated. The Western world will not lose. We are going to stand together. We'll stand firm. We'll help each other. And on and on they yammer and they create nothing other than noise, just noise. It takes leadership. And frankly, I'm not seeing it, not from politicians. Where the leadership comes is from the men and the women in our military. And I, uh, I truly, truly respect them. With me is uh, former Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, the uh, former commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2, the uh, JTF2, the Special Forces Counterterrorism Unit that uh, works both in Canada. They have national obligations and options as well as international. And uh, Colonel Day is now the, uh, he's the founder and president of Reticle, where they offer strategic risk management, training, and innovation services and tailored solutions that discreetly facilitate and enable public and private sector clients. Reticle, if you've ever looked through the uh, scope of a rifle, you know what a reticle is. Colonel Day, it's good to talk to you. Roy, sir, it's, uh, it's always great to be back with you and your listeners and season's greetings. Merry Christmas, and I do wish everybody a, a, a prosperous 2018 going forward. Well, thank you very much, and I hope we have a quiet 2018 going forward, but I, I, hardly, uh, I hardly think so. And I read a piece a couple of days ago where the uh, the writer, the analyst, suggested that uh, any of the celebrating about the total defeat of ISIS is significantly premature because they may not control territory in the Middle East any longer or not very much, but they certainly are, remain a, a force and remain an attraction for some individuals who feel that they want to fight uh, a, a jihadi fight, and they'll look to ISIS for that. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And this, this is the, the challenge of the 21st century is how do you defeat this insidious ideology that wishes to bring chaos and anarchy and destroy a Western liberal dem- democratic way of life that we hold so near and dear? So you're 100% correct. Even though, and as we've said for a couple of years now, there was never any doubt that ISIS wasn't going to be able to hold terrain in the Middle East. The question is, now that we've slapped that beehive to the ground, where are all those insects going to crawl away to and fly away to next? So uh, homegrown radicalization is always a problem, but where are those other hardcore fighters um, um, migrating to? The last time we spoke, it was just a couple of days after, the head of Britain's MI5, the domestic uh, intelligence service, warned that Britain is in the most dangerous time in its contemporary history. That is a mouthful from an organization that is essentially known for its silence. And that is a direct, I mean, that's a direct warning to the people of the UK to expect more of what they've already received, is it not? 
Oh, it, it absolutely is, and uh, I certainly would not discount what the head of MI5 or MI6 or the, the CIA or the Canadian CSIS um, describe as national security threats to, to our way of life. So, again, the, the difference is the UK, uh, Europe, and the US have different societal makeups than we, than we do here at home, but it doesn't necessarily mean those threat vectors or those hazards are any less diminished. Um. What do you think of, what do you make of, and this is what I started with, what do you make of the the people who are essentially in charge of our Western democracies? These are individuals who are elected to govern. They start out by uh, being members of a political party, and then whether it's, whether it's political gamesmanship, whether it's opportunity, whether it's sensed opportunity, they become the leaders of the party, and then if the party wins an election... Maybe because of uh, clever sound bites that have been planted in in the mouths of the party leaders by ultra clever public relations people, you have these individuals then running the country. I'm not pointing the finger at anybody. I'm just saying that this to me is we we sometimes I find we find ourselves with people who are running our democracies who are hardly qualified to do so. Well, uh, Roy, that's certainly a loaded question. I know it is, and I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, what I would suggest is that uh, although a lot of the political leaders or even politicians, and this is a generalization, not an accusation against any one person or group, but although they do come into public service with very limited knowledge, generally speaking, about national security issues, we can take a little bit of heart and solace in the fact that the leaders and the men and women across our national security institutions, especially in Canada, are, tr- are truly world-class and some of the best, best in the business. Where we, where we get into the friction, though, is the ability for those men and women to be both empowered and enabled by those political leaders. And this is where the average Canadian can actually help, because uh, as you've alluded to earlier in the, in the, in the conversation, because these problems are not necessarily right on our doorstep, we sometimes lose sight of them. And the reality is if we don't take time to prepare before the storm hits, when it hits, we're reacting and we're not ready with all the resources um, that the men and women who are going to step up and assume that risk on our collective behalf um, to, to, to defeat those threats. And that's the biggest challenge I, I see, quite frankly, is the politicians are who they are. That's just the model that we live within. But if as a society, we don't demand more, and it's not an, an either-or, like healthcare or defense, or you know whatever that might be, innovation or, or security. We need to change the conversation to an and. How do we have healthcare, leading world-class healthcare, and the right national security umbrella? We, we seem to find ourselves a lot in these either-or conversations. Do you know, I find it uh, really disturbing that in 2017, weeks away from 2018, and this is now 16 years after 9-11, almost 17 years, coming up, well, months away from being 17 years. And we're still hearing from political leaders, from people who are in the know, and it doesn't matter what party it is because we keep handing off to different players. We don't have the resources. We don't have the manpower or the person power. We, we don't have what we require to, to do the job the way we want to do it. And I say to myself, why not? It's been almost two decades. How can you still trot forward an excuse that we don't have the resources that we require? The resources are out there. Why don't we acquire them? Yeah, and I agree, and I've been, I've been on this uh, perch for a while. The resources are actually out there, 
And I would argue that if we actually looked inside government, um, some of those resources are just not prioritized. And so even something as simple as the latest report that came out of the UBC professor on the national shipbuilding strategy or the CF-18 Australian fighter replacement program, we come up with absolutely ridiculous solutions to relatively straightforward defense and security problems in this country through no other reason than just political um, you know, meanderings and a lack of strategic coherence about what we need to do in this nation. It is actually very frustrating to a lot of folks to see that we actually then have an idea and then we start messing around with it. And I would use the F-35, CF-18 latest debacle as, as, as a perfect example of why can't we just equip the Royal Canadian Air Force with the best technology that's out there so they can do what we ask those men and women to do on our behalf? Yeah, we weren't asking for the same number of F-35s that the United States uh, military has, but it was a reasonable number. And instead, we're going to spend half a billion dollars to buy F-18s from the Australian Air Force, who has no more use for them. You know, absolutely. It's, now, what's it's the like point? When we bought the use, it's like when we bought the used submarines off of the brick. Oh, yeah. We, see, we seem to have this national predisposition to be cheap when it comes to national security issues. And I, and I believe that is because we are fortunate to be surrounded by three oceans and a superpower to the south. But when, well, we, there's no reason. When you look at what Australia spends on defense for a slightly smaller country than Canada, they're spending almost, not exactly, but almost twice the budget on defense. I'm not suggesting we need to double our defense budget. I'm just suggesting we can do better. Well, I have to think, Colonel Day, that there is an impact on the morale of the men and the women in the Canadian military when the best we can come up with is a, 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 a bunch of discarded aircraft the Australians have no use for anymore and we're now going to turn them over to our air crews and say, here you go, and in a few years' time, we'll start the bidding process for another plane. But in the meantime, fly these wrecks around. I, okay, maybe I'm, over, uh, I'm, over, I'm overstating, maybe, but... No, you are, but I would also suggest there's another thing that is insidious in terms of the attack on the morale of the, the men and women across the Canadian Armed Forces, across the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, across the national security apparatus. But if you go back to the Department of National Defense in particular, in September, the government made an announcement that they were going to start to claw back and cease the special allowances that um, the higher risk people, uh, the higher risk members of the forces receive for, for being in either a high duty or a high risk occupation or a, a high threat environment. And so now you're going you're gonna to create a situation where people are going to say, why am I going the extra mile if you're going to take my money away from me if I get hurt? And oh, by the way, my family has become used to that little bit of extra remuneration because, oh, you, de you determined that I actually deserved it on the front end. So there's a number of policies um, that have come out of late that just don't, there, there's no coherence to them as part of, the, part of our biggest challenge. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, retired former commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2. His uh, company is Reticle. Just go to reticle.ca. I like the, um, the opening line, and I'm just going to read this because it speaks to me about what competency is all about and what you want 
to accomplish radical beliefs that are proven approach to solving wicked problems cultivated and refined over decades of service in Canada's first-tier special operations unit can help others in navigating today's highly ambiguous, networked, and complex global environment. Radical.ca. Colonel Day, that speaks to what we are facing as a nation, as a world, and we need to understand the people who operate and who manage our affairs need to understand that. Can we go back to what you were talking about just before the break? And that is what's happening to the special operators. Is It's not danger pay, but it equates to danger pay, does it not? Yes, it is. what it is is it's not only special operators, but it impacts the special operators directly because they are quite arguably the most deployed folks forward. It is anybody in the Canadian Armed Forces has got a hazard and danger pay, such as submariners, explosive ordnance disposal technicians, air crew, anybody that's doing something slightly above and beyond gets a, a hazardous or a danger allowance for when they're out there taking on an additional burden or when you're serving in a, a special duty area such as Iraq and, and Syria right now. So when those men and women are out there, they're paid extra to be there because there's a higher level of risk. And what the unfortunate part is, is if they get injured, then it used to be the system would allow them time to uh, heal, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily be a time-bound decision on when the allowances were ceased. It was a conditions-based. And now we seem to have moved to this arbitrary six-month uh, timeline where if you come off what's known as a temporary category, then if you do not, sorry, if you are placed on a temporary category because you can't do something due to a, an injury or an illness you received, um, if you're not fixed within six months, then you're going to lose that extra money. And in some cases, that could be upwards of five to $6,000 per month, which is a significant hardship on the family. So what happens is people um, will start hiding those injuries. And so this is completely uh, disconnected from a government approach of saying they want to take care of the welfare of our, our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and airwomen. And they'll go back to their units, and they're not fully healed because their families need the money. And so that puts them in greater danger and it doesn't help the unit any either. It absolutely doesn't. And, and it puts them in greater danger, puts their teammates in greater danger, and quite honestly is probably exacerbating injuries and letting, instead of letting people to get uh, help. And we see this a lot with operational stress injuries. People will hide those injuries because they're afraid of the stigma. But now you're going to say, okay, not only are you afraid of the stigma, you're, we're going to take your money away from you. It's just, it, it's not congruent to what we should be doing in, in the 21st century, taking care of those men and women who are walking point for this nation. Yeah. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Back with Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, former commanding officer of Canada's Counterterrorism Unit, Joint Task Force 2, one of the world's premier special forces unit. You talk to anybody in the Special Forces community, they'll tell you the Canadian JTF-2 in the top three in the world. And yet we treat our military, we, the government treats our military almost as throwaways. Junked British submarines that never worked. A Canadian officer was killed in the fire aboard the Shikutami, HMCS Shikutami. A British MP said we should be suing the British government or we should be investigating our people who bought the junk. Um, $500 million paid in fines for canceling the EH-101 helicopter deal. Let's see, $500 million to buy Australia's junked fighter planes and telling our pilots, there you go, there's your new equipment, when the Australians are getting the F-35, I think it is. 
Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day was the commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2. He joins me on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Colonel Day, what do we need? Uh, what, what, do, what, do we, what do we need? What do we have to do to make our forces confident um, they are capable Confident and well-equipped. I remember 15 years ago talking to a, a member of the, uh, the the army who said they were at, uh, I think it was Borden, and they were doing exercises, but they had to jump up with a broom and yell, bang, when they were supposedly firing a shot. I did that when I was five years old, playing with my buddies in the backyard. What do we need? Well, I, I think what we, we need to start with is an actual true national strategy for national security. And that includes both defense, RCMP, CSIS, and the other national security actors that fall within the, those agencies that support us. And if, if we actually had a strategy that was coherent, again, I go back to Australia, a smaller nation than ours, spending more money on their national security. Now, they live in a relatively bad neighborhood when you look at where they are compared to where we are. But they actually have a brilliantly written document that outlays or outlines, sorry, government policy that is bipartisan and says, this is what's in our national interest. This is what we believe as a nation we should be investing in both our men and our women and our equipment to make sure that we safeguard our way of life. So right off the top, we actually need a national security strategy. And lacking that grand strategic document and vision it is then very hard to align all the tribes, if you will, and all the silos within government who start to fight over the little bit of money that's actually made available to them. So this is, this is the first thing. What is our strategy? And then once you have a strategy, you can actually build the plans and the equipment that then supports the strategy. You know, if I asked a politician, a political leader in this country, why we're not doing that, they lie to me and they tell me, well, we're, we're going to. We're, don't worry. We're, we're, we're going to. We'll get to it. Just, just don't worry. We have a plan. Uh, I won't ask you to comment on what I just said. Um, so now we have a situation. Let's go back to the beginning of our conversation. ISIS still exists below the surface, still a significant threat below the surface. They are now calling on their so-called lone wolves to, to attack schools, to, to attack kindergarten classes. This is, what they're, this is what they're broadcasting. This is what they're asking their lone wolves to do. So we in this country now have uh, at least 60 former ISIS terrorists who have returned here. Probably more, but at least 60. Our federal government is doing what? Oh, we're going to uh, reintegrate them. We're going to provide them with counseling. I think they're going to be reading poetry. I'm not making any of this up, as you know. This is for people who were in tune with and may in fact have done all the things that we saw on television of ISIS do, the, the horrors they committed at a time when ISIS is saying, we want you who are aligned with us to commit, commit atrocities in Western nations. And we're saying to the ones coming back to Canada, we're going to reintegrate you and counsel you. I, I, I don't know what to say, Colonel. I, I just, I don't know what to say. Well, and this is where we, we talk about an incoherence at the national level. And I, I do agree, or sorry, I do believe in the rule of law. And I do believe in all the things that make Canadian society great and just. But I find it utterly incredulous when we are going to, and I don't want to say welcome with open arms, because clearly we're not going to do that. But you're right, we're going to bring these people potentially back home, while at the same, who, who went overseas 
to kill our men and women who were deployed overseas, and then we're going to bring them back home, yet at the same time then cut the pay of the very guys they went over to kill. It does, it just, it's, there's an incoherence there that I just don't know anybody could ever explain, and nobody seems to have asked that question, going, how is this possible in the 21st century that we've got government policy so far out of discord with what's going on on the reality for the men and women we send over there to do things. It just, it's, I don't understand it, quite honestly. Yeah, well, that's why government will only do interviews with people who won't ask that question. Um, Possibly. Yeah, I'd love them to come on on this program and, and speak with you. They, when do you say we, 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 uh, we live by laws, Canadian laws, Canadian values? I understand that. And you've said previously you wouldn't want our, our military to be breaking laws and doing what they would have to consider based on their upbringing, based on their understanding of a civilized life. They wouldn't want to do something that they would consider to be immoral. Yet the, the, the British, the Americans, the French, the Australians have given orders to their special operators in the Middle East to kill their citizens who joined ISIS before they can get back to their, their home countries. What do you think of that tactic? Well, again, I, I don't think, uh, quite honestly, that we should be out targeting like, I mean, going out of our way to target our fellow citizens, because I think that is a very, very slippery slope. However, if they are in the battle space, if they are in the theater of operations, and they are a legitimate target, I am very confident that they would be targeted. But if they are not a legitimate target or are not doing something, then it doesn't make a lot of sense to take relatively finite resources and to start to manhunt your own citizens. Because quite honestly... That is more of a law enforcement problem than a special operations problem. The other part of that coin that sometimes gets lost is I talked about a little bit earlier is operational stress injuries. If we are going to ask the men and women of this country to go out there and do bad things to bad people, well then unfortunately, occasionally, there is collateral damage and you have bad things happening to innocent people. And if we don't set up our commanders and our men who are actually pulling those triggers to know that what they are doing is supported by this nation, is supported by the rule of law, we are actually creating operational stress injuries and PTSD because they won't realize, or they may not realize that morally they were correct. It is critical. It is critical that we maintain the moral and ethical high ground so that we do not create a whole bunch of operational stress injuries for people who are doing bad things to bad people. And I'll tell you, having done some bad things to bad people and been in the what we would call kill chain, I sleep very peacefully at night knowing that what I did was morally, ethically correct and that it was supported by this country that sent me over there to do those things. And that's critical. It's absolutely critical for the health and welfare of our, of our soldiers. Do you worry about them? I, I absolutely do worry about what's going on across our first responder community, our national security apparatus, because these men and women who are walking point to this nation, whether that is a firefighter, a paramedic, a police officer, a Canadian Border Services agent, corrections officer, we in this country, because we are, and I'll say it again, because we are cheap, we are putting all the burden down on that frontline front professional and all the risk is assumed by that frontline professional. And you just need to look at the suicide rates amongst our first responders mm -hmm. to see that we are not resourcing these men and women correctly. We've done some programming on, uh, on suicides among first responders, and uh, including military, but police, firefighters, 
paramedics and they're scary numbers and they're growing larger and we are cheap and we are not doing what is required. We're not providing the support, the tactical support, the, just every kind of support, moral support. We're not doing what we, re- what we, what we must and it's just, it's absolutely abhorrent. Colonel Day, thank you so much for everything you've done for, for this country, for Canadians. Uh, you've kept us sleeping comfortably in our beds at night by doing the things that you had to do. And uh, much appreciated and wish you a very Merry Christmas and the very best uh, for 2018. You and the men and the women you serve with. Thank you, Roy. Same to you and yours and, and, the, and the wider listeners. And, uh, again, this is a topic that I am passionate about in particular. And thank you for giving me a bit of a, a pulpit to stand on to just uh, to shout to the hills, if you will, on behalf of those men and women. Thank think, you. Have a, have, have a great Christmas season. Thank you. I think they hear you. Thank you. Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, radical.ca, R-E-T-I-C-L-E dot C-A. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, Derek and Francis Bars made headlines nationally, internationally, when the former foster parents took the Hamilton, Ontario Children's Aid Society uh, to court, alleging their two young foster children were removed from the Bars' home because the Bars insisted on telling the kids neither Santa Claus nor the Easter Bunny are real. So the Bars' court application against CAS alleges their charter rights were violated because of their religious beliefs. And the Bars case, as I've been telling you, against Hamilton CAS, goes to court in Hamilton next Monday. There is, by the way, there's still that film I want you to take a look at if you haven't yet. It's it's free and it's online. Yeah, the, the film is titled Powerful as God, and that is what a CAS worker said to a family. We're as powerful as God. And they tried to stop that film from being released, but they weren't successful. So Derek Barr joins, uh, Bars joins us from uh, from Alberta. Derek, thank you for the time, and please remind us how Children's Aid first challenged you and your wife about telling the kids neither Santa nor the Easter Bunny are real. What was their approach? How did CIS approach you? Well, I thank you very much for uh, having me on, Roy, and from one voice worker to another, I, I hope you'll get well soon. I have to preach tomorrow, and my, my throat is not happy either. Uh-oh. So, uh, so we suffer together, but that's yes, sir. all right. Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, to the to the point you were raising about what CAS was asking us to do, um, we did not insist on telling the children that the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus are not real. We were told by the agency that we were required to tell them that Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny are real. And we were told that if we did not do that, we would be shut down as foster home. The children would be removed. That ended up happening um, with... 24 hours notice. So uh, I'm assuming that you must have been absolutely miserable foster parents then if they shut you down in 24 hours over the, I'm tongue-in-cheek, uh, over the Easter Bunny and, and, and Santa. Isn't the idea really to provide the kids with a good, stable home? One would think so. And by, by their own records, we had told CAS ahead of time, there are things we're prepared to do, there are things we cannot do in good conscience. Among them were uh, trick-or-treating on Halloween, um, suggest telling the children that Santa Claus was the one who gave the gifts or that the Easter Bunny was the one who, who hid chocolate eggs. But other than that, by their file indicates that we did a fine job as foster parents. Okay, so you were looking after the children 
the way they needed to be looked after. They had a solid firm foundation and a home they were living in. What about people who would say to you, come on, Derek, it's just little white lies for little kids. Surely you can, surely you can bend the rules a little bit. Well, the position of uh, saying that we are only going to speak the truth, we're not going to lie to you, you're not going to lie to us, if, if, there are, if any lies are permitted, that, that's an inconsistent position. Mm-hmm. Does this disqualify you as foster parents throughout Canada or just in the Hamilton area, and for how long? Um, we would need to let other agencies know about what's going on, what had happened in Hamilton. And uh, we are desirous to adopt children if the Lord opens those doors in, in Edmonton. And we've, we've been upfront about what has happened in Hamilton. Um, there have been people, as you know, who've criticized you and your wife and said, come on, these people shouldn't have those kids because they're just, they're just um, forcing religion on them. What do you say to those people? I, I would say that our religion is, uh, well, number one, it is the advantage of being true. Uh, we're Christians. Uh, number two, it's protected by the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And if the Charter means anything, our Charter rights must be protected, and we hope that that will happen. And uh, just for the record, it's Wednesday of next week. No, Is Monday, it? Wednesday. What Wednesday did I say? At 11 a.m. You said Monday. I did I? Okay. Well, we get people there early. Um, <laughs> very early. Very, <laughs> very well. early. Okay. Yeah, they'll be fine. So, um, are there other foster parents who've had children taken away from them for similar reasons? Uh, are you aware of anything? Any any other cases? Anybody get in touch with you? Um, I'm not aware of situations precisely like ours, but I'm aware of another situation where JCCF, the legal firm that's representing Francis and me, is also representing a Christian evangelical couple in Edmonton who were cleared to adopt except they hold the traditional religious views about homosexual relationships. They would urge their uh, children in their care, their adopted children, not to pursue that path, uh, because of their religious motivation. And for that, they were not permitted to adopt. Would they raise the issue with the children, or would they speak to it only if the children uh, brought it up in conversation? Um, or you don't know? Right to ask, I don't know. You don't know? Answer. Okay. So you go to court on Wednesday, and you're asking for what? We are not asking for money. We are asking for our charter rights to be protected, that... Uh, Children's Aid Society would not discriminate against people with sincere religious beliefs. There are probably other people uh, previously described as having alternative lifestyles that they would not be caught dead discriminating against today. And so we're asking for equal treatment. Where are the children now? Um, I'm not entirely sure. Okay. And, and, and that's confidential. You have every right to ask it, but we've agreed to keep confidence. Okay, fair, fair enough. And you do want to become foster parents again? We wish to become adopted, adoptive parents. Adoptive parents, all right. So Wednesday morning, the John Sapinka Courthouse in Hamilton is when your case will be heard. Right, 11 a.m., and I, I believe it'll be open to the public, and uh, those who want to, to come and watch in an orderly way are most welcome. All right, Derek, thank you for the time today. Thank you. Derek Bars joining us from uh, Edmonton. There'll be more about this case, I'm sure, as the week progresses. 
The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.